Hi, thank you for tuning in to the Finding Harmony podcast with me, your host, Harmony Slater. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. Happy New Year. I am your host, Harmony Slater, and I'm so excited you're here today for our very first episode of 2022. I can hardly believe it. I hope you've had time to reflect on the year gone by, but even if you didn't have time yet, there's always time these first few days of the year. So it might be nice to take a little moment to just reflect on last year. Think about maybe what worked, what didn't, some of the things you were successful at, some of the things that maybe you fell down on, and see if you can identify any places where you felt scattered, Maybe you're trying to do too many things where your energy felt dispersed. And then start to cast a vision for the year ahead. Who do you want to show up as for the people closest to you? What are some tangible things you want to see grow in your life, in your family, in your relationships, in your business, in your yoga practice? And what can you be more focused on? How can you become more focused? What can you zero in on? Is there one thing that feels really important to you right now? Maybe just take a moment to close your eyes and go inside and see what comes up for you as the number one most important thing, the thing that would help you move closer to the person you want to be or the life you want to have, something you're dreaming of. And how can you then commit and stay committed to that every day? So I know a lot of times we make New Year's resolutions or have a lot of hopes and dreams or goals for the new year. But if there's just one thing on your heart right now, what would that one thing be? Just take a few moments to listen quietly to yourself and to what that one thing is for you. That one thing that you know will just change everything for you. And Russell and I just want to wish you all the best for 2022. I'm so excited to be entering another new year with our Finding Harmony podcast and with all of you who are listening. And our guest today is actually someone from Russell's past. He is one of his first Ashtanga yoga teachers. He was a mentor to him and uh, somebody that Russell apprenticed under. And that's Guy Donahue. Guy Donahue has been practicing and teaching uh, Ashtanga yoga in the lineage of Sri K. Patabi Joyce for over 25 years. But he's also made a connection with Dr. K.L.S. Joyce, who his students affectionately affectionately call Acharya. He uh, is a doctor of astrology as well as yogic sciences. And so today he no longer is teaching Ashtanga Yoga in the method of Sri K. Patabi Joyce, but rather is teaching classes uh, that are within the Ashtanga Yoga realm, but in the way that he's learned from KLS Joyce, uh, his 
other teacher, his teacher of yoga, who he now follows. He is the author of a book called Guruji, A Portrait of Sri K. Patabi Joyce Through the Eyes of His Students, which is a collection of 30 interviews with senior teachers and close family members of Patabi Joyce. And we talk about his book and his thoughts about the book now in light of um, all of the accusations that have come to the surface around Sri K. Patabi Joyce and also his recent move uh, out of New York City. So he's now left New York City and has found himself back in England. So lots to talk about with Guy Donahay. Many changes for him coming in this new year, 2022. And I hope that you will just love this reflecting on some of the past, but also looking to the future and uh, a beautiful conversation between friends, between students and mentors meeting again for the first time in many, many years. So I hope you have a beautiful day, a beautiful week, and a beautiful month, a beautiful year, and we look forward to having you continue listening to each episode every week. Um, It's our pleasure to bring you these wonderful guests and share their stories and have these conversations with them and with you. I hope you feel like you're a part of the journey too. So without any further ado... Here is Guy Donahue. Hi, welcome to the Finding Harmony podcast. I'm your host, and I'm here with Russell Case. Hello, everyone. And we are joined today by Guy Donahue. How are you? Hi. I'm good, thank Hi. you. Thanks for coming on our show. <laughs> it's a pleasure. It's a pleasure to have you. An honor. <laughs> I, I have to be, to be honest, I'm, um, I'm very intimidated. Um, I, as, as our listeners know, I mention Guy often and, uh, I, I worship him and the time that I spent with him is, uh, meant the most to me in my, in my practice and, uh, uh, is the basis for, you know, my, whenever I'm teaching yoga, whenever, but I don't do that very much anymore, but whenever I, whenever I'm with students, I've, I've always, I have, um, say uh, a matrix for how to teach and it's and it's uh it's guy's rubric that i that i'm <laughs> working off of he was with you in very formative years yeah that's yeah. right that's right in uh, mm-hmm. in new york i, I mm-hmm. have a, a an introduction for our guests who may not know guy and i i wonder if you'd allow me to to read it are you asking me <laughs> oh, of course yeah go ahead is it accurate uh, well, if it's not, you should speak up. Yeah, um, <clears throat> Guy Donahue is my first Mysore-style Ashtanga yoga teacher, one of Patabi Joyce's certified teachers in Ashtanga, and in fact might be the last one. Though he is the author of Guruji, A Portrait to the Eyes of His Students, he has asked the publisher to seize publication of the text, and has since written a famous apology to the victims of Patabi Joyce. Guy is now a student of Dr. KLS Joyce and his integral practice of yoga, and we're hoping he can speak uh, to that. Uh, 
Also, my, my former apprentice, Sydney, is also a student of Dr. Joyce, I think, uh, guys you know and remember. Yes, indeed. <clears throat> um, <laughs> <that's>, <laughs> yes to all of it. Um, <laughs> I think the first, the first uh, uh, correction I should make is um, <clears throat> Guy is no longer a Mysore style Ashtanga teacher. Uh, I've decided to let that right. go um, and uh, mm. dedicate myself to teaching more of the uh, style of yoga I learned from Acharya, my, my teacher. And that is um, the, the person that I think, I, that was Shankarayana Joyce. Who who teaches out of out of Mysore? Is that the same person? Yes, Shankarana Joyce, <clears throat> or Acharya, as he's known to his students. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Did you ever have the chance to meet him? Because I I had done a yeah. Jyotish session with him in Mysore. Yeah, I met him twice for an astrology reading. Right. Yeah. Okay, so that is the same fellow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I've got a number of. Uh, I've already feel like I'm. I want to go off in a number of different <laughs> directions. W- was there anything else about the intro that um, y- you'd you'd like to uh, to correct or uh, add to? Sure. Um, <clears throat> well, I feel that Acharya has been my teacher for many many years, and um, I met him uh, when I was already studying with Patabi Joyce, and actually I was already teaching. Um, Ashtanga Yoga uh, authorized, and uh, I, in that context, made certain promises to Patabi Joyce about practice and uh, coming back, and uh, you know had this kind of already a sort of guru student uh, connection there. And I met Acharya, and I was really impressed by what I heard him, uh, how I heard him speak. Um, but it was not for quite a few years um, before I could actually really get a bit close to him and, and, and sort of become a student. But mm-hmm. I felt in my heart already that uh, he, was, he was my teacher just through listening to, um, listening to his talks. Um, and uh, I had mm-hmm. some astrological readings with him as well. And like you say, Russell, uh, he knew things that he shouldn't know. Um, in other words, he had a very intimate <laughs> um, uh, knowledge um, which really impressed mm. me. Um, so, <clears throat> you know, I went to, to India to study with Patabi Joyce in 91. And uh, I think I, you know, sort of uh, decided to devote myself in a certain sense to that practice initially. I decided I'd go for um, mm-hmm. a couple of years and try and finish the first couple of series. I understood they were you know, the critical ones. It was more, more like an experiment in the beginning. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I began to realize that uh, you can't really dabble in yoga. You have to kind of really dive into it a bit more deeply. So um, I think I was fairly committed to that Ashtanga practice when I met Acharya. Um, but at the same time, um, as you probably know, Patabha Joyce had injured me severely. Um, and... Mm-hmm. I was already knee. Uh, my knee and my hip and my shoulder, my back, <laughs> my whole body was. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> that, that pretty much covers all the major areas. <laughs> oh man, my body was <laughs> trashed, but uh, I mean it wasn't in great shape beforehand either. So um, I think that was part mm. of the problem that uh, 
was this pain uh, helping some kind of improvement? Um, anyway, by this point, uh, I, I think I knew Patabi Joyce was not my teacher, capital T, he was not my guru. I, I, I didn't believe that uh, um, uh, he could guide me in that way. But I'd become an Ashtanga teacher and it became my profession. And I have to admit that uh, in a certain mm. sense, uh, once I got locked into teaching it, uh, it maintained my connection um, with it for much longer than it should have. Um, I should have let it go sometime earlier, I think. Mm-hmm. The thing is, when you, when, you, when you teach something, you feel obliged to practice as well. You feel that you would not be yeah. true or authentic as a teacher. So I continued to, to practice the, that same method, even though I was developing another practice that I got from Acharya alongside it. Um, but mm-hmm. I think the, the pandemic really sort of uh, helped me to bring it to an end, you know. The shower closed, and mm. I couldn't believe what a relief it was to stop. It just felt amazing. I was very happy. Mm. Um, mm. So yeah, that, there's a lot in that. There, there are a lot of layers. <laughs> there's a lot of layers to that uh, conclusion that I came to, um, and some of them only very recently. Mm-hmm. Well, I remember um, you saying to me uh, after Patabi Joyce had died that 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 in itself was quite freeing for you, that you'd felt a, that uh, you, there was less of a burden there for you. Yes, yes, that felt, uh, that's very true. Um, it, you know, it's, it's the, the connection with a teacher, even if it's a difficult one, is, uh, is you know, can be very, very powerful, very strong. <clears throat> you know, it's a bit like a marriage in a way. You know, you can stay very strongly connected mm-hmm. to somebody and it can be extremely difficult and you, you can live through um, difficult times. And when you separate, you still continue to have a uh, difficult relationship often. And I think a relationship with a teacher mm-hmm. is very similar. Um, in one of your questions, mm-hmm. uh, you were suggesting that Patabi Joyce was a sort of a, like a father figure to some people. Um, I never felt that for myself. Um, but uh, you know, he definitely had a kind of a quality of authority and we had a certain faith in his capacity to heal that was certainly very strong in the beginning. Um, and a faith mm-hmm. in the practice, which he was the gatekeeper to. So I have to admit that uh, mm-hmm. for myself, and I know for most other people, even though we were only supposed to go there to, to you know, out of devotion and uh, to Patabi Joyce, to Guruji, um, we really wanted to progress. We wanted something concrete from it. And as a result, uh, for many people, I think they uh, overlooked certain um, imperfections. You know, they wanted to get something mm-hmm. out of it and uh, were willing to put up right. with uh, uh, pain <laughs> and humiliation and uh, <laughs> all kinds of uh, confusions, um, which shouldn't be there in a relationship with a teacher. That's the, the last thing you would you would wish for or expect in that relationship. Mm. So I, mm. I think a lot of, you know, a lot of people uh, with Patabi Joyce and with Sharat and with any guru type person, person who puts themselves in that position, which we also do when we teach the traditional Ashtanga method, uh, it puts a huge kind of pressure and uh, uh, there's a big expectation on the teacher um, and uh, 
it's it's a it's a very difficult it's a very difficult um uh relationship in fact i only realized afterwards mm-hmm. actually how how problematic it actually is when we start looking at all these things that have been happening you know in my soul mm-hmm. yeah so i i met you in just um gosh a couple of days before 911 i started practicing <clears throat> with you in new york and i practiced with you for a couple of years in <clears throat> from my perspective enthusiastically i don't know if i if i look that way as a student uh but uh, i remember shortly before going to mysore and i'd said to you that i wanted to go and i had your encouragement i remember a conversation that that you had with me about um I was trying to see if you remembered this conversation. Some senior person in our community, or just perhaps just a friend of yours, uh, had said that he was giving up Ashtanga Yoga, that he felt that Ashtanga Yoga's practice was uh, mired in a cycle of violence, starting with Krishnamacharya to Patabi Joyce, and Patabi Joyce to the rest of us. And that conversation always had always sort of stayed with me, and certainly as as uh, as Karen Rain's message uh, started um, explosively percolating through our community, that 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 I kept thinking back on that conversation that we had had. Do do you remember that? I I think I do. Yes, um, <clears throat> I think that was my first teacher, Raphael, who said something like that, a perpetuation of a cycle of violence. Um, And uh, I did receive warnings before I went to Mysore in the first place from various um, teachers and friends um, about this. One of the things that I've come to realize um, as yoga teachers, we put ourselves in a different kind of position in that... um, we're dependent on the practice and we're dependent on uh, it being something, let's say, marketable because, you know, we're teaching it, all right? So, mm-hmm. you know, teacher being a sexually ab- sexual abuser or causing injuries or, or whatever is, is kind of inconvenient, you know. You don't really, <clears throat> that doesn't help the brand at all. <laughs> So, Not at all. <laughs> you know, Patanjali says this, when you're very attached to something, uh, all you see are the good things in it. It's one of the clashes. Mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. Um, you know, we as teachers are attached to Ashtanga Yoga, and that creates a certain blindness. We only see the positive. I mean, obviously, we are seeing aspects of the negatives too, but I think we are, we are invested in it being... Um, at least our version of it, as perfect as possible. Um, and I think it's mm. very problematic. And for me, I only really began to get some understanding, uh, better understanding when I stopped teaching as well as stopped practicing. Because I stopped practicing Ashtanga about mm-hmm. five years ago completely. And uh, mm-hmm. I developed these two pra- this other separate practice alongside the Patabi Joyce practice and Pranayama meditation, and then eventually... After 25 years of, of practicing Ashtanga, I thought that's probably enough. Just, you know, as I'm still teaching it, I feel that's enough to sort of give myself 
credit to continue. Um, mm -hmm. But uh, it's really only since stopping, in fact, I stopped practicing asanas altogether in the last couple of years. Or rather, mm -hmm. I should say, I practice one asana, uh, just a sitting posture for uh, seven yeah. hours a day. Siddhasana. Yeah. <clears throat> Siddhasana, yeah, yeah, indeed. <laughs> Mm. <laughs> <laughs> What's the main difference, would you say, between um, the Ashtanga yoga like methodology, where it's sort of you know learning these asanas one by one is very asana centric, and the practice that you learned from Acharya Joyce? Um, the is it more meditation and pranayama based? <clears throat> is there an asana component? Um. <clears throat> There is an asana component uh, that uh, is a sort of integrated practice, which is similar to, um, has many similarities to the Patabi Joyce style, because Acharya was a student of Patabi Joyce at Sanskrit College mm. uh, for many years, mm -hmm. uh, and he practiced Ashtanga Yoga initially. But there are certain very mm. significant and important departures, and I think uh, it's not so much... Um, how different is that practice from Ashtanga Yoga, but what elements in Ashtanga Yoga are there which um, actually are causing some kind of limitation, I believe, on a person's uh, psychological or spiritual practice? <clears throat> I'll speak about mm -hmm. that in a moment. But broadly speaking, we could say that uh, the Acharya sequence is specifically designed to prepare you for meditation. He doesn't really think asanas are that significant a factor in the practice of yoga. If you think about it, asana is about one-tenth of the Ashtanga yoga system. <laughs> and if you add in you know, mm -hmm. five yamas, five niyamas, five niyamas, or maybe ten yamas, ten niyamas, as uh, is uh, described in the um, Hatha Yoga Pradipika, then asana becomes even less significant. It becomes maybe you know, a twentieth, mm -hmm. a fifteenth. So Asana does help yeah. up to a certain extent. Um, and, you know, as you know, in Patanjali Yoga, asana means a comfortable seated position, which is suitable for meditation. So mm -hmm. it really depends mm -hmm. what are you looking for in yoga. Are you looking for, um, is that what you're looking for? Are you looking for meditation? <laughs> are you looking for the real yoga? Or are you looking for some, some kind of exercise? And there's no doubt mm -hmm. that practicing Ashtanga Yoga has many other um, values apart from just pure exercise. But <clears throat> mm -hmm. I think on the whole, you could say it's a form of exercise. In the beginning, maybe it's mm -hmm. a form of uh, purification therapy that takes place for a few few years. But I think beyond that, actually, um, uh, you have to ask yourself, if, you, if you've done a therapeutic practice, why you keep doing it? Didn't it work? Mm -hmm. <laughs> Did it work? Did it work? Yeah. Yeah. If it worked, then why are you still doing it? That's one of the, one of the thoughts <laughs> that came to. Like, wow, this is a therapeutic practice, so why are people still doing it every day? Um, so I can see it changes you to a certain extent, and I believe that there are certain factors in the Ashtanga practice which are actually limiting, and one of them is the even breathing. That may be a surprise because mm. uh, it seems like such a beautiful thing. Um, but this even breathing, which was introduced by Patabi Joyce, it's his idea. It doesn't belong to the yoga tr tradition mm -hmm. at all. 
<clears throat> in the yogic mm -hmm. tradition, the exhale is emphasized. Not the mm -hmm. inhale. Yeah. Not even breathing. The exhale. You look at all the yogic texts. Patanjali says, mm -hmm. to calm the mind, exhale and hold the breath. It's the only pranayama he mentions in the first mm -hmm. chapter. <clears throat> the classic pranayama is inhale for one, hold for four, exhale for two. So why did Patabi Joyce mm -hmm. introduce this even breathing? Where does it appear? Krishnamacharya doesn't introduce that either. Krishnamacharya also has breath retentions in the postures. So this is a unique mm. development of Patabi Joyce. Now, one of the things that I think he was trying to do was to suggest that this even breathing um, developed equanimity or developed detachment. Mm -hmm. uh, he would always quote um, the Hatha Yoga Pradipika and says, uh, you know, breath and mind are linked together like milk and water. Control the breath, control the mind, control the mind, control the breath. Mm -hmm. Even mind, even mm -hmm. breath. <clears throat> and mm -hmm. yeah. I've also taught that and practiced that and used that to a great extent in, in, in my life. Um, when you're in a you know difficult situation, if you if you start breathing in an even way, it relaxes your emotions and you become a little bit detached and you can look at things with a bit more distance. But what happens if you're always looking at things with distance? Um, you know, we are not just yogis. We are living life. We have families. We have children and um, husbands and wives and so on. So <clears throat> what place does equanimity have or what place does detachment have as a householder, which we all are? My conclusion mm -hmm. is that to some extent, and, I've, I, and I think part of the observation has come in the reaction to the Patabi Joyce abusers, is that this even breathing has, has, has um, facilitated a certain kind of bypassing. It's a common um, expression today, a spiritual bypassing, a kind of detachment, <clears throat> a kind of ability to see the good things in Ashtanga Yoga and Patabi Joyce and bypass the bad things, which is, of course, mm -hmm. sort of necessary if you want to continue with the practice. Um, the alternative is... Um, you know, you can be conflicted in your practice or you can put it on one side. <laughs> but if you're going to continue, then you have to, to some extent, feel okay about it. How do you feel okay about it? How do you feel okay about the fact that the progenitor of this um, practice harmed people, sexually abused people? Mm. How does that feel? It doesn't feel very good, mm. I don't think. <clears throat> anyway, mm. my conclusion also with observing Patabi Joyce's failings um, uh, was that in the first place, you know, he's just one of us, you know, we're, we're, none of us are yogis, real yogis. Um, uh, <laughs> and none of us should be elevated to that position either. But I think Patabi Joyce was an extraordinary person in a way. And I think many of us also are, have extraordinary capacities, but we're not gurus and we're not yogis. And that's one of the first things we just had to put that on one side. Patabi Joyce was, you know, he definitely had some um, very strong, valuable qualities and he also had some very human failings. Um, and mm. when you regard him as a guru and re you regard him as a kind of spiritual teacher, then uh, the practice that he put forward also has some kind of value, which is beyond mm -hmm. the concrete 
you impute into that some some spiritual quality. If it wasn't him, then it's the parampara, the tradition that brought it to him. But there was no parampara that brought it to him. He created it. <laughs> so you know, these are, this is extremely problematic as a teacher. You know, when you're teaching this mm-hmm. Ashtanga brand, um, yeah. and uh, I feel very relieved to just let it go. Um, another feature which I think is um, <clears throat> actually really kind of harmful is a premature use of Mula Bandha, Udhyana Bandha. From my own personal experience, I think. Oh, really? Yeah. Um, you know, all the texts say you should ex- you know, exercise extreme caution with these practices. You should be pure already in body and mind before you do these practices. Mm. And none of us are, is the problem <clears throat> when we start and even after mm. we've practiced for some time. Yeah. My feeling is that what happens is the combination of this even breathing and the Uddiyana Bandha um, actually sort of fixes um, the unconscious where it is to a certain extent. Mm-hmm. I know that certain oh things goodness. happened in the first few years of practice which were quite profound, but if you want to, if you want to heal yourself, if you want to <clears throat> go into your, um, release your history, let's say, go into your trauma, mm. go into all the darkness, all the shame, all the, all, all the things that happened to you in your life. If you want to really experience yoga, you have to be, you have to be healed from that. You can't experience samadhi if you are mired in this misery. That's your history. <clears throat> now, to think that you can, through a bit of stretching and breathing, you can release your trauma is perhaps uh, believable when in the beginning. But you guys have been practicing for 20 years, <clears throat> more like myself. What do you think? Do you still have pain in your body? Do you still, <laughs> are you still afflicted by the past in some ways? Do you sometimes, you know, things come up from your past? Um, and and cause you extreme trouble. I think they probably do. Um, mm. I don't believe this mm. practice actually releases that. It helps you with the day to day, just like any exercise: running, karate, kickboxing. Mm-hmm. You can get some of your day to day stress out, but the deep deeper layers of stress, you have to mm. mine that. You have to go there with your mind, mm. and you have to look at those things carefully and understand them uh, before you can release them. You may have a little. <clears throat> Um, <clears throat> release in Kapatasana and then you jump back and mm-hmm. you do the vinyasa and you do this chaturanga and you, you just start, you know, you, something opens and then immediately you're doing these stressful positions, chaturanga for instance can you do a perfect chaturanga mm-hmm. that the weight is evenly distributed on all four I parts haven't. of your body how many chaturangas have you done in your life, Russell, do you know <laughs> I calculated um, that I've probably done about perfect. a million <laughs> Around about, a, <laughs> in my case, I calculated I've probably done about yeah. a million chaturangas. Now, each time I did a chaturanga was imperfect. And my feeling is that what happens is even though stresses get released in the body, what happens to some of it is it gets redistributed. Mm. Tell me, does one side of your mm-hmm. body, is one side of your body still stiffer? Is one shoulder mm-hmm. or yeah. one hip or one, you know, one ankle? Do you feel that? Has your body become yeah. perfected through yoga? 
Not exactly, no. (laughs) Yeah, right? Right? (laughs) And you have to keep doing this thing day in, day out. And maybe it's actually sustaining something rather than allow you to release. And this Mm. actually was my experience. About 10 years Mm. ago, um, I went on retreat with Acharya. I'm sorry, not asking me any questions, but uh, I hope that's okay. No, this is we're letting letting the tape roll. It's it's a big, it's a big, it's a big subject I've been reflecting on a lot in the last couple of years. Yeah. So a couple of years, uh, about 10 years ago, I got to go on retreat with Acharya, which I thought, wow, this is an amazing treat. I'm re- I had really wanted to get my meditation practice properly established. And I came to yoga because I wanted to meditate. That was, a, that was the reason why I came to Ashtanga Yoga in the first place. I couldn't meditate looking for a practice. And somehow in meeting Fatabi Joyce, and he was telling me about mad attention. Uh, there's no such thing as meditation, only right. you know, crazy mind. I let go yeah. of it. Eventually I came back to it about 15 years later and um, <clears throat> 20 years later. And uh, I was sitting for the first time um, on retreat with Acharya and I thought, this is fantastic. I've got 10 days. Every evening we had a sit with our teacher and I was really excited because I thought this was established my practice. And each day I came to sit, I had this niggling pain underneath my right shoulder blade and uh, I just couldn't get mm-hmm. rid of it. And I was totally frustrated in my meditation. And um, I reflected on this. I've been practicing Ashtanga Yoga for 20 years. And I couldn't meditate. I still couldn't sit and meditate. I still had pain in my body. This gave me a, like a huge kind of realization at that moment. <clears throat> then I sort of found a way to sit uh, at home, so propped up so that I wouldn't feel that pain in my shoulder. And I continued to practice and meditate for quite a few years um, uh, and had some success. And then a couple of years later, a couple of years ago, so this is maybe seven or eight years after the first instance, uh, I was again uh, with Acharya and he said something interesting. He said, uh, when you're meditating, if you have pain in your body, most likely it's due to a past sin. By, by the word <laughs> sin, he means like a, a past afflictive action. And of course, logically, that makes complete mm-hmm. sense if you think about it. All the pains in your body were caused by your actions, whether they were not necessarily or mm-hmm. could have been caused by other people's actions, I guess. So other people's sins could also have caused you pain. Mm-hmm. This is also possible. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> it's complex. If you start thinking about the law of karma, why do you attract somebody's, you know, somebody to... Mm-hmm. Um, harm you that's a big kind of issue mm-hmm. big question that's uh, a bit controversial yes. in the, the, the theory of karma but anyway <clears throat> you can see that most of the pain in our body is caused by something we did previously maybe you you know you played tennis uh, for 20 years um maybe um <clears throat> you were driving a car and got mad uh, with somebody and you got a like a totally stiff neck um maybe you ate <laughs> 10 chocolate bars, um, and you have a terrible stomach ache. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you get the idea. Basically, yeah. all the pains in your body are caused by um, previous bad actions. And uh, this sort of light bulb mm-hmm. went off in my mind, and I thought, oh, this is interesting. Because <clears throat> I'd also been reflecting on something Patanjali was saying, 
which is, um, you know, to get to the higher stages of samadhi, you have to make your samskaras, your memories, your past impressions like burnt seeds. The memories, mm-hmm. the past experiences that you have had have to be released of their emotional charge. If they're emotionally charged, mm-hmm. then you can't enter into a meditative state, at least not into the ultimate state. Mm-hmm. Uh, they act as a, as a hindrance. So this is part of the process. And I was wondering to myself, how do you, how do you make the, those samskaras? How do you burn those samskaras? And like all of us, you know, we all think about our past. We all think about our past mm. history. We try to resolve it one way or another, whether it's through yoga, whether it's through art, whether it's through mm-hmm. therapy. <clears throat> Everyone's on that same, everyone who's in the path of yoga or spiritual development, spiritual evolution, is in some way confronted with their past and feels like they have to deal with issues, whatever they were. And um, I have also done the same thing. What I discovered was, uh, through a practice that I developed, was that in spite of the fact that I've thought about all these things in some depth, there was like a, there was like a, um, a residue in my body of those past actions. As I started to explore mm. this idea mm-hmm. uh, and that one niggling pain underneath my shoulder blade, uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to start meditating on the pain. I'd be interested to see what happens mm. when I meditate on the pain. Because usually in mm-hmm. practice, what you do, you have a pain and you stretch to try and like ease it out. You know, you, mm-hmm. you, move, you move your body mm-hmm. and try and like mm-hmm. tease out that pain. You try, you want to avoid pain. You want to eliminate the pain. Mm-hmm. I thought, well, what happens if I go into the pain? Because I wanted to see what the psychological component might be. Because I've been looking for where, where is this memory stored? Where is this, where is this record? Where are the samskaras? Mm-hmm. And it was fascinating. As I started looking at the pain and focusing on the pain, um, it became mobile. And there was also a psychological component came up in my mind that was associated mm-hmm. with it. But as soon as I started focusing on it, it started to move. And as you know, mm-hmm. the body is made up of these, um, the skeleton and the muscles and the fascia. Um, and the body is um, held together by a certain tension in the muscles. And where there's some dysfunction uh, in the body, which we all have, there's an excessive tension in some muscles and perhaps an excessive Mm -hmm. um, release in other muscles, uh, or maybe there's just spasming all over, but there's a spasming in the body. Um, (laughs) And basically, like, for instance, let's, let's take... You look at one muscle, let's say um, uh, uh, hamstring. It attaches uh, at the buttock and attaches at the knee, mm-hmm. right? That mm-hmm. attachment yeah. uh, at, the, at the buttock is also um, connected to then the, the muscles of the buttock, the glutes. So if there's tension in the hamstring, mm-hmm. that also pulls on the glutes, if you relax the hamstring, it also relaxes the glutes. Now, the body is a total array of all these muscles and strands of muscles because every muscle has thousands and thousands of strands. And as you know, certain mm-hmm. muscle strands can be tense while others can be relaxed. The potential for containing information right. in the body in the musculature is just astronomical. I wondered whether it would be the same as the 
potential um, number of neuro, you know, the, the information you can contain in the brain, you know. <clears throat> I don't know. Anyway, it's very clear that there is a muscle memory and there is a, an, uh, something mm. in the body is containing these memories and these, uh, uh, your emotions. When you feel something, mm-hmm. where do you feel it? Do you feel it in your head? You feel it in your body. Mm-hmm. It's all totally. stored in the body. Yeah. You have a negative. You have a negative experience. Mm-hmm. You feel some tension, and sometimes it doesn't ever go away. Like you go back into your into your history. Just mm-hmm. think of a time when you kind of wince at something. You know, you have a sudden tension, or let's say you get really mm-hmm. angry while you're driving. Certain muscles tense up. Did they ever really right. release? And layers and layers and layers and layers of not just anger and tension, but also shame, humiliation, you name it. All those things are expressed in your body and they're all stored there. Mm-hmm. Isn't it? Here, like, try an experiment. You know, you can take any one of those things, let's say shame or anger, and you meditate. Just think of just like put it in your mind. Probably the most likely thing will happen is the last time you were angry comes up or a time you were really ashamed comes up. You'll feel that sensation in your body. Mm-hmm. It's still there. It's still there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So what I began to see is when I focused on the pain is that pain started to move around and started to disperse. And uh, as I looked at the psychological component of what was coming up in my mind uh, and looking at my body, that gave me the possibility for the release of those muscles. And then furthermore, what I discovered was and there was this whole cascading effect. So after one muscle releases, mm. let's say you know I feel you feel a lot of tension in your right shoulder and the shoulder relaxes, suddenly some other part of my body wakes up and starts tingling. The muscles start fasciculating, mm-hmm. and release happens somewhere else. So what was interesting to see is that once this process mm. of release starts happening, there's a cascade. Now, when you do Ashtanga yoga, when you do practice, you do Padangastasana for, for, for five breaths, and then you jump back to Samastitihi, and then you do Trikhanasana, for five breaths, and then you stand up and you do left side trikonasana for five breaths, and then you maybe you do a samastiti in between, or maybe you do the, the reverse side. Constant moving, stretching, tensing certain muscles, stretching certain muscles, coming back. What I discovered, if you come back to samastiti and stay there for 10 breaths, there's a, there's, again, I'll use this word, there's a cascade of release in your body. But if you stand there for one mm-hmm. breath and then you go into the next pose, it feels like you were just moving this tension around, the posture begins to look quite nice. You look great, you know, in the pose or even out of the pose. But there's tension in the body. Mm-hmm. Isn't there tension in your bodies? Is there tension in your body harmony, mm-hmm. Russell? After all these years of practice, <laughs> isn't it still there? Mm-hmm. It's, it's still Tell there. <laughs> it's still there, right? I mean, I've been, yeah. I've been with this on my own, sort of thinking about it and wanting to talk to other teachers because I'm convinced everyone has the same experience. I believe the tension just gets moved around. And I believe it's partly because we develop this kind of detachment through the breathing and through this bandha, which then pulls the diaphragm up. You know, the diaphragm, the breathing muscle, is also the hugely emotional muscle. You know, it's the, it's right. the uh, boundary, you could say, between the unconscious and the conscious. Everything that happens in the heart above the diaphragm is conscious. And what happens below is in the gut. You know, and this diaphragm can become, mm-hmm. I think, and the body can become a, like a suit of armor. Strong, mm. looks powerful, 
you can endure so much and you have a level of detachment, I believe that uh, this is actually limited. My experience is this is limiting. I really felt for a decade, I felt like, I used this actual word, I felt, I felt retarded in my spiritual practice. And by retarded, I mean, uh, to retard means to slow down. I felt that my spiritual practice, I just felt like I wasn't going anywhere. I was doing this practice, maybe because I was split. I was doing this practice. I didn't believe in it. But actually, I think that the actual practice um, was locking me in the best version of myself, which is another expression people use today, which is not the yogic version of yourself. You know, you get to Mm. I don't really, you know, I don't adhere to that idea at all, best version of yourself. But um, that's sort of, that's a sort of part of me that I felt was being, you know, I look good. I mm-hmm. talked, you know, I could talk the talk. It's supposed to be a conversation. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> I'd, I'd like to ask you a question because I feel like one of the most profound things regarding Ashtanga Yoga I learned with you, which was in reference to Kapotasana, exactly, that, you know, I, I had certainly brought all, all my story with me to your class, uh, which was, um, you know, my preferred position was to be rolled up in a ball in a closet and <laughs> hidden away. That was my preferred physical posture. And <laughs> being um, unraveled in your class and uh, torn open in backbending. What, I think you might even remember that I was, I was, I really very much struggled to breathe when I was in backbends. And uh, I'd very often feel like uh, I'd cut off my diaphragm, I'd cut off my, th- my, my throat was closed and trapped. And, and so the, the years that I spent with you were, you know, um, quite a few of them I was having, you know, night tremors and night sweats and, you know, terror thinking about going to your class in the morning <laughs> that I did quite enthusiastically. Uh, so for me, the, the practice became this, this, uh, th- this incredibly transformative practice where I looked at those backbends as, uh, as like death approaching me like here comes death but through through that time with you i started to appreciate that moment when it was over when i was past it when i was through it with you <laughs> oh we're done now finally and then i could associate this with a kind of i'm freedom now i'm finally free i don't have to do that again until tomorrow at the same time <laughs> And that was the transformative piece to it, that I was, I was transforming it's, terror into freedom. It's transformative, but that the very last sentence is like, I don't have to do it until tomorrow. Are you insane? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think that I was a little insane at that time. We were yeah, all insane. I, we're, that's the thing, we were <laughs> insane. And you know what I was trying to do, Russell, in that time when I met you? I was trying to Mm -hmm. teach as authentically like the way I was taught by Patabi Joyce in Mysore. And the fact that I I instilled night terrors into you, um, my God, (laughs) there's no surprise. And 
I thought I was doing the right thing. I thought I, I thought this was I thought this was correct. And uh, you know, my whole thing was I didn't really believe in myself as a teacher at all. Um, I never really have done. Hmm. Um, it's very convenient mm. to say, well, look, here's a system that's perfect. Let me let me do that to you. And uh, <clears throat> I was okay mm. at the end of it. I hope you will be too. That's such a that is <laughs> such a that is really um, not taking the right responsibility with your life and with your soul, I believe. And none of us are, are, are qualified to do that. Um, you trusted me. I trusted Patabi Joyce. Mm-hmm. I almost said, do it to me, Patabi Joyce, because, you know, I already feel like death. Mm-hmm. Um, you can't make it any worse. <laughs> and, you know, maybe if I feel this pain mm-hmm. in my body intensely, then my mind will get free. It's just sort of what you were saying. But, Mm-hmm. That is so, you know, masochistic. What a way! You know, I think a lot of young mm-hmm. people are mas- extremely masochistic because we're just in such a mm-hmm. s- desperate state of no hope, um, and then we're attracted mm-hmm. to something violent because, you know, for that same reason, we feel we ex- we feel violent towards each towards ourselves because we're not you know we're not happy with who we are, mm-hmm. <clears throat> so we welcome it from somewhere somewhere else. Um, Russell, I mean, I, I tra- treat you with a lot of love, and uh, uh, <laughs> I feel also compassion. Um, but I feel it was wrong. I don't. I don't know. I don't know where you are today mm-hmm. with it. But I feel it was wrong. I did, don't feel it had to be that way. I feel there was other ways and quicker ways. And we, I feel that we addicted ourselves to that continuing something of that continuing approach for for, for far too long because. Yes, it's good for for a few for a few years. Your body goes through changes, and then you plateau. I think that's when you have to stop, or that's when you have mm-hmm. to think about pranayama, meditation, other things. Right. This drive to continuously improve, to to uh, get better in your physical body, just becomes a very narcissistic endeavor. I believe. It's, why would you spend two, three hours of a day yeah. just perfecting your body when uh, the rest of your life is in a mess? You know, and why use a yoga practice <laughs> well, to try and I, sort your life out? Uh, why not do, use a yoga practice to meditate and sort mm-hmm. your life out in life itself? You know, most of us were just kind of running away. I think yeah. getting into yoga when we went to India. Mm-hmm. That's the yeah. Well, <clears throat> well, that's what I what I think is is that I spent some time with you in this kind of immersion therapy, uh, facing incohate terror, and learning to be sort of adjusted to it. And then a, a few years later down the road, um, everything became kind of really too painful and too unbearable. And I, uh, I realized that it was just way too much for me. And so, yeah, I, I, I stopped um, reaching out for those new sensations or, you know, new ways to experience terror and, and, and stepped... 98% back from that kind of physical um, practice? Intensity. Intensity? You mean you, mean you stopped practicing that, you look at... Did you stop practicing um, asanas maybe? Or just, just reduce the intensity? I mean, I, I, I do snake pose. And, <laughs> you do uh, some asanas, I do but they're a little, not like... Uh, uh, 
you're not like seeking out new asanas, I would say. I do a <laughs> little bit of cobra of... <laughs> and some downward dog yeah. once or twice. And then I sit with my legs up the wall. You do some balancing. <laughs> you do twisting occasionally. You do like standing. Something like that. You yeah, basically yeah. standing postures. Yeah. But it's, um, it's a well, very I... much a relief to not right. have to do any of those mm-hmm you know, fear inducing things. Do you feel that you, but I also feel like a sense of, I feel like I appreciate that I did face that. You got some of the lesson. You got some, you got some, some benefit Mm. from having done that for a period of time. And I, and I love and appreciate that you led me through that. Still. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I'm not sure how I feel about it. <laughs> I mean, uh, you seem to be doing okay right. today, yeah. but you know, uh, there, were, <laughs> there were others who left the shala in distress as well and in pain for sure. Yeah, and it's you know, it's not just yeah. the physical element. There's also the psychological element because you know, surrendering to mm. that, those intense adjustments and 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 that kind of practice. Um, requires a willingness and some people were not willing to do that and some people were, you know we basically right. would fight uh teacher students and that creates create a lot of dissidence and right. dissatisfaction and mm-hmm. of course people left the practice as well or wanted to find somebody who would do it differently i was very yeah i'd say rigid which seems a bit yeah i was very clear about the way i wanted to mm-hmm. um to offer it yeah, and I uh, I tried I took on that cloak myself as a as a way of uh, honoring your method. <laughs> I would like I would yeah, and I just I tried to do it the way that you did. And even though I did see in every class that I had that conflict, mm. I saw every class there was a conflict between someone who didn't want to do it the way that um, I thought was the right way. Especially when I was an England guy, <laughs> <laughs> because uh, you I were think you bring up a really interesting of... point. Right. Yeah. Uh, no. Yeah, I, I feel. I feel they were uh, you English people. <laughs> something there. You go ahead yeah. with your question. <laughs> <laughs> um, what what I kind of love, uh, just to comment on that, what I'm observing here is um, very often you see in shops and places, you have, people have, you have the right to wear a mask. That's, that's the, that's the British Uh, politeness. You have a right to wear a mask. It's not, you have an obligation to wear a mask. So (laughs) that's the British way is, um, you you know, America's very much about rights, but uh, the British, I think, feel the right to have their own opinion have their own viewpoint on things, uh, do things their own way. Uh, that's mm-hmm. the beautiful thing about this country. I think yeah. one of the beautiful things that, uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sorry, Harmony, you were yeah. just going to say something. Yeah. No, that's okay. I was, yeah, that's quite profound. Actually. I think um, you bring up a, a really interesting point about, um, I mean, there's a, there's so much in there, actually. Um, <laughs> <laughs> my, first, my first thoughts were about, because I just, came back from a, a nine-day Vipassana retreat. Um, and and so, of course, when you're sitting, you know, practicing the meditation for many hours a day and you're basically just sitting and observing breath or sensation, 
you know, everything you're experiencing is really, I could relate to um, very immediately. Uh, watching, you know, sensation arise, how the mind and the, the body are very much interconnected and, and, and having like those, those memories or sanskaras or, you know, things kind of come to the surface and then they just sort of dissipate and then something else arises and, and just watching that and, and it being something that you're not um, manipulating or trying to control, but you're just sitting in observation of, I think it's an incredibly profoundly deep experience compared to the asana practice where you are actually trying to manipulate the sensations, you know, as you said, you're like trying to stretch out that sensation or, you know, not just see what is and observe what is you're physically forcefully doing something to either create a certain sensation or, or to avoid a certain sensation. Um, and how that kind of, um, patterning maybe of working with the body in that way keeps you at a very surface level. And I think that that is, is true because the sensations are so strong that you miss those subtle sensations. You miss like that vibration or that, you know, soft tingling sensation in the body. You're always there's, focused there's no on time. this very gross sensation. There's no time yeah, for well, it. Yeah, well, exactly. There's no time. There's no time. Yeah. yeah, to keep going. <clears throat> exactly, yeah. exactly. And so, um, yeah, I really I really resonated with that explanation of right. the meditation and sort of in contrast to the practice of the, of the asana. Um, and then also this idea of holding tension in your body. And that was something that I realized, um, like, probably 10 years ago or so is, you know, Patabi Joyce would always say, oh, you shouldn't get massage, right? It was like a big thing. No one should get massage. You shouldn't do body work. And you shouldn't do Vipassana. Yeah, or Vipassana. But anyway, um, but when I would get a massage or have body work done, it was really interesting because I noticed when you release that, there's a certain pattern in your body of holding tension to do the practice the way that like your body is been patterned to do it and then say you go and get massage or you have body work done or something it takes you out of that pattern and then you can't necessarily do the practice like the way you used to do it you have to then kind of you know practice for a few days to like redevelop that muscle tension in those certain areas of your body so that you're always in a particular holding pattern and um and so again that really um kind of resonated with me what you were saying that like you know it's almost like a perpetual pattern of holding a certain certain tension in certain areas that that almost acts like a an obstacle then for like progressing further or deeper into those more um subtle unconscious areas of your of your mind body complex where you can really like release those things because it's not helpful physically for your practice to release that tension but like emotionally mentally psychically it's probably really helpful to release that tension right well that's the whole point in fact isn't it that's what we all yeah. want you want to release that tension <clears throat> i've noticed this with <clears throat> with other types of practice too even pranayama or concentration, mm -hmm. when you actively are trying to do something, it creates a tension in your mind. So mm -hmm. my meditation has gone in a different kind of direction um, from that. Mm -hmm. 
But I even found that doing pranayama, uh, it creates a mental stress which prevents the actual relaxation of mind that's required to be in the place you want to be. Very interesting. Yeah, but at the same time, <clears throat> doesn't it completely make sense that uh, when you're, you know, in the beginning, when you practice yoga, you, you get vigorously into it and it's, a, and it's helpful. It get, makes you strong if you're weak. It makes you, it helps you detox. It helps you change mm -hmm. your lifestyle. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I have some doubts about how much the actual practice does for us and how much the mm -hmm. lifestyle changes that we make in order to do the practice really does so for instance you can't do marriage right. Right. because you you know your your eating habits are completely out of out of whack but you really want marriage very badly and so you totally clean up your act and you know you eat one meal a day or whatever it is yeah. it takes you to be able to do that and bingo you've got the pose but you've also changed your 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 diet and probably you've changed your sleeping pattern these things you know according to ayurveda if you have yeah. correct sleep correct exercise and uh, mm -hmm. correct food, then most of your ailments will disappear. Um, <clears throat> I think any kind of exercise will do, running, you know, running, kickboxing, <laughs> whatever, doesn't really matter. Um, yeah. We have created this sort of mythology around this physical practice. And there's definitely healing factors that are happening there. There's no doubt. Mm -hmm. And psychologically too. Um, <clears throat> But I, th mm -hmm. I, I believe it's a bit of a danger to just keep on going with that same old, same old, same old. When your body's asking, you know, we're mature people now, you know, <clears throat> somewhat. Mm -hmm. And it's time to move on from intense physical activity to more contemplative practices. It just, just makes complete sense. And presumably, mm -hmm. we sorted our lives out to mm -hmm. some extent that we don't feel so much stress that we need to do a physical practice to release it with. <clears throat> and also, the other thing is, Mm -hmm. One of the things that I discovered, you know, when, when I first started practicing Ashtanga, I, I, uh, I committed to doing it for two years so I could learn primary and second series just to see if it would have an effect. And then I decided I was going to stop. But it took me three years. Uh, and then I stopped for a year. <clears throat> and I wanted to see if I felt different not practicing Ashtanga. And actually, I think I got what I needed out of it in those first three years. And I only went back to it because I started teaching and then maintain my practice because right. I continue to teach. Uh, having said that, I definitely kind of started to buy into the idea that maybe I, it would, the physical practice would take me somewhere. And one of those things was to pranayama with Pratabi Joyce, to certification. Uh, so these were much more things that I wanted to acquire through practice. Um, but uh, I, got everything, I, I got everything I needed. That you could yeah, grab no, they weren't hanging low at all. They, were, they weren't hanging low. The thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. They required a huge amount, huge amount of commitment and pain and, and, and so on. <clears throat> yeah. And, you know, I, I have to admit, I didn't mm -hmm. do it for the love of the practice. I loved India. Mm -hmm. I loved being in India. And I loved mm. Acharya, and I loved his his teachings, and I, I met many wonderful people in India. I loved being there, um, mm. but I didn't. Mm. I've never loved the Ashtanga practice. Mm. It felt good for me for mm. a while, mm. yeah. um, and mm -hmm. uh, yeah. <laughs> I, yeah, I always sort of associated it with um, with torture. <laughs> um, 
But I, I do think I think I think you're right. I mean, I think there's a there's something when you when you've never um, experienced sensation or you've never like you know done something unpleasant consistently for your betterment. <laughs> there's something to also like overcoming that raga duesha, right? That like desire, that craving, that aversion, and like facing your aversion and like just continuing to do the thing and see what happens um, to a certain extent. But then it's almost like that, that moving to those places where at first you have a great aversion, um, you know, once you kind of remove some of those obstacles and some of those blocks, then all of a sudden the craving comes and then you're like craving the next posture and you're craving the, yeah. the you know, all the other things in the practice. And so the it's, laurels that come with those. Yeah. It's, it, it's sort of like it, it, it works, but then it also reinforces the raga duesha after a certain time too. It's really it's interesting to watch that that play of of the aversion and then the desire within the um, you know when when you have that consistent practice for many years. Hmm. <clears throat> yeah, I mean it's interesting to observe the, uh, the 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 desire and the aversion and with a, a sort of uh, playfulness <clears throat> and uh, mm-hmm. i've been reflecting a lot on the fact that uh you know yoga was actually developed for men not for women um <clears throat> and i think mm-hmm. that men and women uh are totally differently constituted you know we don't understand each other right <laughs> do you understand women russell <laughs> do you understand what makes uh, men I do, do, right? do you understand <laughs> Do you understand what makes men violent? Do you understand what makes men sexual predators? I don't think women do. I don't think men understand women either. And I think we are almost different species. So I had this big question about (laughs) They do say that. (laughs) Um, I have this big question about yoga. They say, well, what do you say? I mean, that's the beauty of it as well. That's the beauty of the difference. The the difference Mm. creates this sort of when you connect, this uh, this uh, um, balancing of opposites, balancing of differences, you know, mm-hmm. between male and female. Have you, have you seen? Mm-hmm. Yeah, have you seen that book, uh, "Splitting the Difference" by Wendy Doniger? Have you? Uh, she's a Sanskrit scholar out of Chicago. She did the the big Hindu book, and she talks about this actually. That if you look at mythology and you look at it worldwide, and you can see that mythology is all written by men, then her premise becomes uh, that the, the, difference, the differences between men and women are profound, whereas men all over the world have a lot more in common. And women all over the world? Presumably too. You yeah, think, yes. presumably. <laughs> yes, no? Oh, okay, okay. More common. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah. Uh, yeah, I think that I think the differences are huge, <clears throat> and and mm-hmm. you know if you look at if you look at the crime statistics, for instance, you know I I, I don't know off the top of my head, but <clears throat> probably ninety percent of murders, incarcerated people, sexual abusers or assaulters, etc. etc. Name, name a long list. A male, five to ten percent female. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's the, the, the difference is mm-hmm. just incredible. And so um, I think men have a much more troubled, conflicted incarnation than women. 
I mean, women obviously experience a lot of pain and conflict, but I believe, and this is according to the the yogic perspective or Ayurvedic perspective, you know, a woman's a woman is prakriti. The woman is prakriti. Mm-hmm. The feminine is prakriti. Prakriti, and a woman is <clears throat> incarnated or embodied in a much more wholesome way than a man is. I believe, in a much mm. more centered way. So you know, you could say that we have principally like head, heart, and gut, you know, these three elements through which we operate, mm-hmm. you know. A man is very polarized mm-hmm. between the head and the gut, whereas a woman is much more balanced. So <clears throat> a man can entertain a simple mm-hmm. emotion like dislike, love, hatred, but not complex. Mm-hmm. He can't hold love, mm-hmm. respect, confusion, and anger, and many complex emotions at the same time towards a person. It's impossible. What does he do? Mm-hmm. He goes to abstraction, he goes into his head, or he goes into his body. He goes out for a run, he goes to chop wood, he goes for a hike, or he hits somebody, or rapes somebody, or he goes <laughs> to play computer games, or into abstract argument. The man is very polarized, mm-hmm. whereas woman is, I feel, wholesomely embodied. And according to yoga and Ayurveda, a woman has the capacity to release all her sins and suffering every month through menstruation. This is a mm. toxic mm. element coming out of the body. So if you, you know, if you're healthy, then that that gives you the capacity for release of sins. Whereas a man has to hold his hand up in the air for twenty years until you know his and not cut his fingernails, <laughs> blah blah blah, to get the same effect. Men had to do penance. <laughs> Women didn't need to have to do penance. Yeah, Women yeah. through the wholesome embodiment. Um, um, can release that tension. So I've been reflecting on that a lot, that these mm-hmm. yoga practices were developed for men. But having said that, <clears throat> and maybe that's why, I was refl- that's why I was kind of joking a little bit about, about the Raga Dvesha. You know, I think we we suffer much more perhaps with this Raga Dvesha. And women, it's part of women's leela perhaps more, um, as you mm-hmm. were describing it mm-hmm. in your asana practice, um, more of a, a play. I don't know if that's true. Mm. <clears throat> but the original yogic practices were not vinyasa yoga. They were, mm-hmm. um, you know, they were kriyas and bandhas and these intense practices, one asana or ten asanas, each one with a very specific mm-hmm. uh, uh, intention. And this mm-hmm. practice of vinyasa, which developed through Krishnamacharya, has really appealed to women. It's spread beyond Ashtanga <laughs> worldwide to women. Right. And so yeah, yeah. maybe it's a new yoga. It is a new yoga. For sure, it's a new yoga. And maybe this is a new yoga which is perhaps more suitable for women. And it's not serving men mm-hmm. in the right way. Um, I, it, I, I, it's it's just so interesting to guessing. see the, the hostility. It's, <laughs> it's so interesting to see the, the hostility to that new yoga in India that women all over the world really have taken to, <laughs> and yet uh, you you see the uh, visible disgust from an, from a, an Indian person, you know, observing that that trend. Uh, Maybe that's not a question. What you're saying, yeah. <laughs> you mean you, well? Uh, okay, oh. let me just. I I feel like I've I've seen a lot of Indian people 
get really disgusted when they talk about the popularity of yoga worldwide. It's like, oh, that's not yoga. You mean the vinyasa yoga? The vinyasa yoga. It's like, but the the yoga that's being done worldwide is is women y- using yoga for what they need. But maybe I think their I think their argument though is that it's it's exercise. It's not actual yogic practice. But so it much. serves it serves these people. Yeah, but they're saying it's exercise. It's not yoga. I think that's the the sort of well. I think very not real, it's not real yeah. yoga. Yeah. No, there's a few. There's a few. <laughs> there's a few um, uh, reasons. I mean, one thing is, as soon as it's popular, it's not going to be yoga. As soon as it's as soon as it's um, right? <laughs> as soon as it's on video, uh, as soon as it's discussed, it's not yoga. Yoga only happens uh, in meditation. That's the only place it happens. Only happens within you. Doesn't happen. Right. Any kind of communication, um, you know, <clears throat> you can see a pic- photograph of somebody and say, "Oh, that's yoga." It's not yoga. It's not. That's just a, that's a pose. That's somebody mm-hmm. posing for the camera. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Nothing to do with yoga whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, we have sort of exploited mm-hmm. that to make a business out of it, uh, and I'm sure India, Indian, many Indian people are are very upset about that. Um, but the commercialization of yoga came from. India, of course, as well. You know, the gurus brought it, brought it uh, <laughs> over and uh, sold it uh, for lots of money. So, yeah. um, <clears throat> not yeah. really fair. It's not really fair to blame Westerners uh, for something which has been enthusiastically shared by um, by certain Indian people with mm-hmm. uh, with the West. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, and then the, the the question is, you know, for many people. Uh, you know, asana has very little. You know, for Indian people, asana has very little to do with yoga per se. Like we said, it's maybe ten percent, maybe 20, 15, 20 percent. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the real yoga is uh, is you know, it's not it's not a physical thing at all. Um, exactly. So that's offensive, I think, yeah. to some people. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, I think so. I wonder if maybe um, if you'd allow us to to touch back on. Um. Uh, the, the Guruji book, or or on the Karen Rain, um, um, and her, I guess really what I wanted to talk about was uh, our complicity and uh, uh, Harmony and I and our complicity in this in the cycle of violence. Um, as I, teachers, I, as teachers, well, just <laughs> as a really like the podcast that we do isn't ostensibly about Ashtanga yoga. It's about crisis and resolution and finding harmony. That's what we say. <laughs> and yet inevitably we talk to Ashtanga teachers and we talk about Ashtanga yoga. And we do that almost every time. Whenever you talk um, about crisis and resolution, you talk about Ashtanga. I just wonder if even the podcast itself is... In some way, does it still, even though we talk about uh, Batabi Joyce's abuses on the show, does it still inevitably uh, support and valorize Ashtanga Yoga and Batabi Joyce? Uh, does it still somehow um, undermine Karen Rain that we have a, a podcast and then we talk about it? And I just wanted to know if you had any any thoughts on that. On I, that issue, um, whether I'm we're not helping really, or not. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> I um, the whole 
this whole area I'm, I'm, I've always been a bit uh, confused about. And uh, <clears throat> I uh, never really know what's the right thing to say or do in the context. And I tried to follow, basically what I tried to do was to try to follow um, the, uh, the lead of those who felt they had been, who had been assaulted and um, who were suffering from it. Um, and it was a very, it was a sort of difficult learning process. <clears throat> and um, yeah, it, it ended up causing, I know I ended up causing a lot of, a lot of uh, distress to a lot of people, but I didn't really feel like I had a choice. Um, does it, does it, talking about Patabi Joyce or Ashtanga Yoga in a positive sense, does that do a disservice to victims? Yeah, I think it probably does because <clears throat> as as long as Ashtanga and, and, and this whole narrative is, is propped up as something, especially as something spiritual, um, it uh, undermines uh, it undermines their experience. Having said that, I, I don't imagine they're listening to your podcast. And, uh, <laughs> you know, some time has passed yeah. and there are, you know, they're enthusiastic practitioners of Ashtanga Yoga or confused, conflicted practitioners of Ashtanga Yoga who uh, need to hear discussion and need to hear different sides of an argument probably as well. <clears throat> um, mm -hmm. So as much as people are trying to uh, come to terms with your, your, your subjects, your interview subjects are coming to terms with these issues, I think it's probably a positive thing. And as much as they're in denial, it's probably a negative thing. To be honest, I don't really listen to podcasts or I don't really, I'm not really aware of what's been going on. I've kind of stepped back mm -hmm. after being fairly active in that field, feeling like I'd done what I needed to do. I felt like I wanted to step back and mm -hmm. uh, uh, on the one hand, let those um who had been harmed to have to have the have the floor and then on the other hand feeling at this point not connected really to the the shala mm -hmm. in Mysore not connected really to the practice of ashtanga yoga or to teaching ashtanga yoga that it's not really my place or role to continue in the discussion or debate about it um for those who want to continue right. practicing Ashtanga, they have to come to some peace with it. Uh, personally, I don't wish to, and I don't want to wish to teach it either. Uh, that's a, that's that is a personal choice. Um, yeah. So I don't. Yeah. I, I I've always been very uncomfortable with being political in any way, um, because there are always so many sides, and you're always going to hurt somebody uh, in that field. Um, mm. It's difficult. Yeah. yeah. It's it's interesting because we had Lu Duong on the show who created the, the the Parampara website and it was based on the Guruji book and he wanted to create um, a magazine that was in the same the same vein and you know he uh, he was um, uh, Hillary Clinton's uh, communications manager at one point and his conclusion that he came to is that the as you as you as you said, um, the brand of Ashtanga Yoga, it's a uh, irre 
irrevocably broken because you have to ultimately come to terms with Patabi Joyce's role in it. And you have to make a decision about how you're going to do that. And, and you've made a decision to not have anything to do with Ashtanga with Yoga. And, and so, um, as Lou said, there's a wisdom to that choice. Well, I don't know if the brand is broken. I suspect the brand is still very successful. The <laughs> idea that the practice mm. is something deeply spiritual and authentic and uh, his, like um, traditional, historic, you know, um, has been broken. So a number of myths mm. have been broken. Mm -hmm. And I think for many people, those myths were never, you know, they never accepted those myths. But we, mm. um, <clears throat> absolutely, that I, I, I observed, I saw a few of those interviews on that website, and I was actually pretty distressed about what I read um, and the way in which mm -hmm. a brand was definitely being cultivated. Now, I have been as much part of that as anybody else who taught Ashtanga Yoga. All of us who wrote about Ashtanga Yoga, all of us who were perhaps a bit confused or <clears throat> saw the, didn't, saw the, you know, Patabi Joyce was not explicit about most things. He left a lot of space for us to interpret. Mm. And I think our interpretation created the brand. I don't think Patabi Joyce created the brand. I think our interpretation created the brand, um, you know. <clears throat> um, and I think this, what I saw with the book uh, sorry, with the those interviews on that website was people were quoting Patabi Joyce. I knew he never said that. He never said those things. There's no way he would ever have said that. And these were these were students that he was, or even teachers perhaps, that who were being interviewed who had almost no connection with Patabi Joyce. By this time, anyway, the shala was so big that no one was really practicing with him. They're practicing with Sharat. And <laughs> right. I thought what I saw was. I cringed. I, I thought, this is horrible. This is awful. This is creating so many lies. This is creating a narrative um, about Ashtanga, which is totally false. Um, it made me very uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I was definitely part of that process as well. And, um, you know, you were there, mm -hmm. you, you know, you were, you were in Arshala in, in, in New York, Russell, as we, you know, you know, put big pictures of Patabi Joyce on the wall and all the rest of it. And uh, yeah. sort of, Try to create a coherent, coherent um, narrative about this practice. For instance, one of the things I think I was one of the first people to to write about parampara, which has become a huge sort of like mm -hmm. central theme in Ashtanga Yoga. On my website, I've seen so many people have copied mm -hmm. what I wrote initially in the early stages of practicing <laughs> Ashtanga on my website, mm -hmm. and I've seen it replicated all over, inaccurately, accurately, in all different forms. And um, <clears throat> yeah, we created we created this this language. So I was one of the first ones, I think, to use the word mm -hmm. parampara, and then suggest that somehow going back. Actually, I wanted to discover what that really meant. You know, what was that parampara? Because it clearly was not asana based. But um, mm -hmm. you know, Patabi Joyce's connection with the Shankaracharya, and then Krishnamacharya's connection with uh, Ramanuja. Um, uh, tradition, I thought, makes for a very interesting discussion about how did this practice of yoga come down to us in its different, you know, 
transformation from one teacher to another. <clears throat> but uh, it doesn't confer any authority, unfortunately. Mm. I think it's been so much misunderstanding, mm -hmm. so much confusion. Like, for instance, what, is tradition, mm -hmm. what does Patabi Joyce mean by traditional, traditional yoga teaching? He didn't mean that the series mm. was traditional. He meant that the way the practice was introduced was traditional. It's the same, the way they teach mm. uh, Sanskrit or music or uh, any other art in India is the same. You learn one thing, you perfect it, you repeat right. it, then you learn something s slightly more complex and gradually, gradually you develop this practice mm -hmm. over time. It's beautiful. It's really beautiful. That's the traditional method I yeah. think he was talking about. This one-on-one -on -one connection with the teacher, yeah. slowly evolving a practice. Um, anyway, that's been lost, mm -hmm. I think, to a great extent yeah. as soon as people, you know, introduce led classes and in education uh, self-practice videos. In education so circles, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. in education circles, they they call that scaffolding. You know, where you build one uh -huh. complicated thing on top of a more simple thing, and it's that's how you teach. You know, it's. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I 100% agree that what I did when I left you was to try and recreate the cultivation of a myth in my shala um, that, uh, as, you, as you said, we know very little, and yet we've tried to create a coherent narrative that that is believable. That we can believe ourselves too. Not only what we can, mm. what, not only what, what we share with others, but what we believe with ourselves. And then if you have, as in my case, another teacher, and Patabi Joy said you should only have one teacher, right? You know, <laughs> yeah. so one teacher, right. one doctor, one wife. That was his thing. One teacher, or you'd yeah. be confused. <laughs> one doctor, yeah. or you're dead. One wife, or you're in huge trouble. Yeah. That's what he used to say. Well, I'm, I'm guilty. Mm -hmm. I'm guilty. I had a lot of trouble in my life. Um, Acharya, you know, my the cultivator for my practice with Acharya, uh, in, in spite of the fact that I was teaching also and practicing Ashtanga, just created a big tension within me, I have to say. Mm -hmm. But in a way, that tension's good, no? Uh, it wasn't for me. I mean, I think perhaps, no. perhaps for the students, it was good in the sense that um, I was constantly evolving what I'd learned from Patabi Joyce through my own understanding and through reflection mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on this other teaching. But in myself, it felt like a kind of torture. I was very conflicted. Mm. I was, mm -hmm. Yes, it was not. It was not easy for me at all. Mm -hmm. And actually, you know, mm -hmm. that's where I've come to. Um, when you teach, you sacrifice your practice. Mm -hmm. I personally yeah. <clears throat> continued to practice Ashtanga Yoga in order to teach it, even though it wasn't, I wasn't connected to it in my heart. And that was a, a limiting factor for me. <clears throat> and I think also, even though Mysore teaching is beautiful, um, I really like the non-verbal aspect of it because I'm, you know, my mind is very active. I like to be able to teach through a kind of intuition, healing hands, and so on. <clears throat> yeah, right. Where is the training for that? I mean, there may be some physical <laughs> training, 
But where is the psycho? Where is the spiritual training that you take another person in your hands and you aim to somehow heal them, help them, whatever? And how mm. how much do you then absorb as a teacher when you're touching another person who's afflicted? You know, you're working mm. with people mm -hmm. who are sick. You're working with people who have stress, and they may also even feel those things, feel negative, as negative feelings towards you as a teacher. You know, for whatever reason, just mm -hmm. you know, like I was putting you through hell, Russell. I'm sure yeah. at times you hated me. Yeah. You know, yeah. what effect did that have on me yeah. when I was uh, adjusting you? And conversely, what effect does it have on me when students worship me, put the put my photograph right. on their altar, and worship me? Mm -hmm. That happens too. Right. It's really strange. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I never imagined as a man that I would have that kind of experience. You know, um, mm -hmm. yeah, it's very negative. It's it's very harmful. And um, you know, you leave the you leave the classroom, and the tentacles, the emotional tentacles of the students are still sort of like <laughs> connected to you. Mm. And you know, yeah. as teachers, it's a huge privilege that people allow you to that trust you to to work with them. But uh, at the same time. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> It's it's a big risk for you as a teacher, or a big, um, I believe, a certain impediment. You know, um, mm -hmm. it makes you behave as best you can in the situation. That's the good thing. It puts you on your best behavior, mm -hmm. but you're on your best behavior. Yeah. That's not really you <laughs> in the classroom. Yeah, playing teacher. <laughs> right. It's yeah. not really right. you. Yeah. You know. Yeah. You're playing like a when, role. Like when you're dating a girl. That's that's not really you either until you until you really you get married and then they really get to know you <laughs> yeah yeah that's a really that's a really powerful point i think and i, mm. I it's, it's helpful i think for students to also keep that in mind and and hear that too right mm. that and um, don't forget how, you know, how teachers teacher will say is mm. taking on that role we mm. even say like uh, one more, or yes, you go, or bad lady, or whatever. You know, even mm -hmm. <clears throat> you know, people. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, playing a role, yeah. pretending yeah. to be, the yeah, yeah, even like sidestepping and then inviting Patabi yeah, yeah. Joyce's instruction into the classroom. You know, which is mm -hmm. also what we do when we don't feel confidence. And truly knowledgeable about something that we're teaching, we we say, okay, um, it's a system. The guru said this. The guru said that, and uh, mm. we hope it's perfect within that context. You know, if someone asks you a difficult yeah. question, you have to say, well, the teacher would say this a lot of times, right? But you could do this. You could do yeah. that. Mm -hmm. From my yeah. personal point, my personal experience, what do I know really about the, the student's inner? being now you said mm -hmm. uh, acharya knew some things that he shouldn't <clears throat> um in the astrological readings the astro astrology is a, is a science and the practitioner mm -hmm. of astrology goes into a kind of trance samadhi he meditates on you and through that gains authentic insight into your being that's a true teacher mm. a true teacher knows this, what the student needs through intuition. A true teacher can go into a state of samadhi and understand what the student needs. We're just, you know, mm. we're just mm -hmm. pretending. 
Although, having said that, <clears throat> I'm sure you've had this experience. Very often, you know, a student presents a kind of problem for you and you sleep on it. And maybe after two or even three nights, suddenly a light bulb goes off in your head and you think, I think this is what is needed in the situation. Like an intuition comes, let's say, almost from a spiritual source right. through intuition. It comes to you. Mm -hmm. But it's not coming through a, a process which you're controlling. Once you get into being a true yogi, mm -hmm. then you can mm -hmm. go into that state intentionally. You meditate on the thing. That's what sampradnyata samadhi means. Sampradnyata, well-known. Mm -hmm. Sam, well, prajna, known. When you meditate on something, in depth, you know it in depth. That's how a, that's mm. that's how an astrologer will will uh, help you to understand your chart. He meditates on you and understands you in a certain depth and can present some objective knowledge mm. through that process. That's what samadhi is, at the lower level of samadhi. Yeah, mm. yeah. Uh, I was I was really stunned sitting there with um, Acharya. Uh, uh, Shankarayana Joyce, and he he said to me, uh, "You have one brother older." And I said, "Yes." He said, "Ah, oh, okay, then everything else is correct." <laughs> I was like, "I just, I and everything else he said to me was correct. Everything he said to me about my father and my mom and my my family and things, you know, that would even things that he he felt would happen for me." It, it was correct, and um, it was really um, profound to sit there and have someone ask you if you have one older brother. It was, <laughs> you know, it was, in, it was incredible. That has been my that was that was my immediate experience actually when I walked into the classroom and I heard him speak. Um, mm -hmm. He has a he has a, a profound connection with the truth. I thought this man he's speaking the truth. Mm -hmm. There's something, uh, yeah. yeah. Hmm. Hmm. That's nice. I, I like your analogy of uh, the relation, the student-teacher relationship, more like a marriage than than uh, you know, like student-teacher. It's it's really like almost falling in love when you you know have that experience and you meet a teacher that that yeah. you connect with. It's it's sort of otherworldly almost. I think. Yeah. I think that's why I married an English girl, actually, is that I had fallen in love with Guy and I wanted to <laughs> find some way to unify with him. Um, oh, we're diving yeah. deep into your psyche, <laughs> yeah. psyche now. Yeah. It's, it's interesting. You know, um, I, think about, I think about, I wanted to ask you kind of a, a metaphysical question and maybe, you know, out of some kind of um, need for, for healing. Um, I think about, whether about regret and whether regret is is possible because uh, i i do i regret leaving new york and i regret leaving your classroom i i and i i not as much as i regret marrying that the english girl <laughs> um but yet still um Everything that, that we experience seems to profoundly inform our intelligence and our critical faculties and where we are now. Uh, I, I deeply appreciate the time that I spent in India because I, I realized what, what mistakes I made there and you know um, what mistakes I made 
in teaching Ashtanga yoga going forward. And I feel like a, so much learning has happened. Yet I feel like, well, I could regret all of those mistakes, but I they they inform who I am now. And I, and I don't know if I should do anything about that or <laughs> meditate on it. Or Do you think regret is possible? Well, do you still regret leaving New York? <clears throat> well, I'm I'm happy here with Harmony. There you and go. I, it wouldn't have happened otherwise. There you yeah. go. <laughs> What's the point of regret? Yeah. <clears throat> well, regret, you know, regret yeah. means um uh you you've done or experienced something good and it's gone, right? Mm. <clears throat> Or you've done something bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <clears throat> um, I don't know. Um, I think once you have learned the lesson, then there's no reason why you should continue to regret. Mm-hmm. Is there? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Y- y- you've. Um, I don't a, think it's a. Hel- I don't think it's a. Uh, I don't think it's a particularly. Question. I don't think it's a particularly helpful emotion. I mean, it, it can, it, yeah. beyond helping you to uh, come to some peace, a resolution with something that you that you, that uh, that you regret, obviously. But uh, once you've come to that resolution, mm-hmm. then you wouldn't continue to regret. I don't think, mm. or maybe you would. Mm. <laughs> well, it, if I think about it as why. Well, I regret not being 27 anymore. I regret that I'm now 47, that I'm going to be fucking miserable. <laughs> That's not a good place I mean, to be. I don't know. that. Can you regret something that's inevitable? I don't um, think you can. With, You're inevitably aging. How can you regret yeah. something that's impossible? Yeah. It's sort of you kind of come to terms with having a, a this mortal coil. Well, uh, maybe <laughs> um, look at it different. What, what's what are the, to feel bad about something? <clears throat> do you want to feel bad about mm-hmm. anything in your life? Would you prefer not? Would you not prefer to feel good uh, <clears throat> about? Uh, you know, you can look at it from this point of view. Um, you regret leaving New York, but it meant that uh, all kinds of things happened to you. Those are positives. Yeah. If you'd stayed in New York, you have That's no right. idea what might have happened to you. You might have, uh, I might have tortured you to mm-hmm. death. <laughs> you might have become an electrician. I might have become an electrician. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hard to say. It is. Yeah. <laughs> that that is something you might regret now that you didn't. <clears throat> yeah. 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 That's um. That's an um, that's an impossible contortion. Yeah. I think it's a moral question. I mean, I think the, the kind of moral question is, is it, is it <clears throat> maybe not the, beyond that, this whole question of uh, um, can a yogi, can a yoga, can a yogi rather than yoga practitioner, can a yogi ever really be totally happy? Can a, can a yogi ever, ever really um, be immune to the pain in the world around I think this is sort of where it's pointing to. Mm-hmm. I think it's sort of what you're talking about. Regret. Um, what's your responsibility for all the bad things that happened or for not mm-hmm. doing something 
about making it better? What's your responsibility? That's a kind mm-hmm. of regret that's obviously yeah. helpful in some some respect. And uh, I think psychologically or spiritually, one always has to find some kind of workaround. <laughs> Look, how <laughs> there's so much misery in the world, so much suffering in the world. Does that mean that enlightenment, that realization is impossible? Can, can an enlightened, truly moral mm. person enjoy happiness when there is so much misery? Isn't that a totally privileged position yeah. to take? Now, yogis say, yes, it's yeah. possible. Mm-hmm. Yes, it's possible. What does that mean? Right. You know, and it, it comes down to this the, the question of detachment, vairagya, which is a central theme in Ashtanga Yoga practice. So you know, Patapa Joyce always used to quote um, practice, 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 all is coming. He'd, he'd always quote the Yoga Sutra, say, mm-hmm. practice for a long time without interruption, such as Diga Kala, Nairantarya, Sankara, etc. But he never mentions vairagya, which is the twin that goes together with practice. Vairagya means non-attachment. Mm-hmm. So in, in, in the Yoga Sutra, mm-hmm. Patanjali says, practice and non-attachment, these are the goals to chitta vritti niroda. These are, the, go- these are the, the pathway to controlling the mind. Not just practice, practice and non-attachment. I think detachment's the wrong word. Mm-hmm. Non-attachment. And Vyasa, mm-hmm. who writes the commentary on the Yoga Sutra, says, the practice of Ashtanga Yoga or yoga sadhana is exactly that development mm-hmm. of vairagya. So <clears throat> although Patabi Joyce only spoke about practice by suggesting practice, it's also initiating the beginning process of this vairagya. So there's five different levels of vairagya, mm-hmm. um, partial releasing of attachment to certain things, etc., etc. They go through these different stages. And the ultimate one is paravairagya, which means the ultimate detachment in which there is no longer any thirst for the gunas so that's the that's the entering in this asam pragnata mm. samadhi right. <clears throat> but non-attachment is absolutely essential in yoga practice mm-hmm. what does that mean mm-hmm. does that mean you can't mm-hmm. feel love does that mean you can't feel connection no it doesn't in fact mm-hmm. so detachment is one thing when you think about the sort of more christian idea of detachment it means like Nothing's going to touch me. Nothing's going to harm me. Whereas I feel right. that vairagya yeah. is a kind of intelligent moving of your attachment to something else. Vairagya. Raga means passion or attachment. Vai mm. means to move. Mm-hmm. So you're shifting your attachment from chocolate to God or to spiritual realization mm-hmm. or to evolution or to whatever, anything that supports your practice, anything that's supporting practice of your evolution, uh, this is this is this comes within the range of vairagya. <clears throat> um, mm. So uh, it doesn't mean you can't feel love. It doesn't mean you can't feel joy mm. or bliss. You feel love for all creatures because mm. everyone's the same inside. Mm. Spirit is the same in all non-discrimination right you know so that's a factor that's a feature mm-hmm. of it <clears throat> so i think mm-hmm. you know regret 
definitely you regret certain things. I regret certain things that I've done in my life. But um, to be attached to that regret is is not wholesome, I don't think. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Unless you can do it again. Well, I'm very... <laughs> I'm very curious about a few of your recent uh changes. Uh I'm I'm very interested to see why uh if you could talk about leaving New York and coming back to uh jolly old England. Well, it was inevitable. <clears throat> I don't know why I don't know how I uh accidentally arrived in New York City and remained there as a <laughs> as a resident alien. I've been an alien for the last 23 years. <clears throat> and uh, it, well, New York City is a unique part of the United States where you don't really feel necessarily you're, you're properly in the country and uh, uh, people from mm. all over mm -hmm. from so many different countries, um, different cultures. So it's a real melting pot. And um, I did really enjoy the cultural, not the cultural in the sense of the artistic, you know, like the, the scene, but the culture of meeting people and the people I met there. Um, I enjoyed that very much. Um, hmm. But my heart has always been in the country, in the countryside, in the, in the nature, and um, with the BBC and... Uh, you know, <laughs> nice. the beeb, P PG tips, Marmite, and all this. No, I'm I'm joking. <laughs> I'm not really attached to all those things. Oh god! I, I missed the I missed That's the radio. Amazing. I missed I missed uh, the radio four definitely in in New York. I know you can pick it up on the internet. It's not wow. the same thing. But uh, so I missed. I definitely missed something no. of the culture of England, and I missed the nature. Um, but more than anything else, my time in New York was over. Ruby had uh, left home. She'd gone to college, uh, my daughter, um, and it had always been my intention. I mm -hmm. said once Donald Trump was elected, I would definitely leave. It still took me four years mm -hmm. uh, to, to achieve that. Yeah. Um, but that was like, that mm -hmm. was the final, yeah. <laughs> that was the last straw. And why, why I'm in England, I don't know. I'm, <laughs> We're just sort of exploring where we want to be. Don't really, haven't really found the place yet. But uh, it feels like a are you a good I'd first step. I imagine you were setting up uh, somewhere an else. Integral. Hmm. Oh. I'd, I'd imagine you were setting up like an integral yoga center for Acharya's teachings or something like that. Um, there's no. I have no intention at this point in time for doing that. I'll teach. Uh, I'll be teaching some classes locally. And online, um, coming up in January. Um, mm -hmm. My intention is more to write. That's really what I want to do in the future. Nice. Oh. I want to write. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Beautiful. And do you have a, a couple of new additions? You have a couple of new children. Is that right? I do. I have a couple. One of new or children. two. I have two new children. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> yeah, a two-year-old and a five-month-old. <clears throat> yeah, yeah. Wow. So yes, I've come back. Oh, yeah. Yes. yeah, yeah. So okay. that's you know that's a big part. That's so a big part of my uh, the countryside. <laughs> I hope so. We'll see where we end up, but uh, yeah. So that's a yeah. big part of my future is uh, spending time with the children. Yeah, yeah. Mm -hmm. Oh, beautiful. Yeah. 
In That's fact, wonderful. new beginnings. During this last year, um, while I haven't, um, the shala closed two years ago. <clears throat> and at that moment, I, I've always practiced mm. yoga before teaching. I've always practiced asanas before teaching in the past. And since I stopped teaching, I, I, that's when I stopped practicing asanas. I just went to this one seated pose mm -hmm. for meditation. And then for exercise, I would walk. I decided what I wanted to do was I wanted mm -hmm. to use my body in a natural way. Since Acharya told me, you know, asanas don't really do much for you. I thought, okay, so let mm -hmm. me use my body in the natural way. I'm not going to take public transport. I'm going to walk. I'm going to, um, uh, you know, write letters, lick stamps, mail mail uh, envelopes <laughs> in mailboxes, <clears throat> walk to the post office and buy envelopes. So, you know, our culture is all about <laughs> eliminated any necessity for physical activity. Um, and that's why we need mm. yoga. Mm -hmm. So I thought, well, instead mm -hmm. of like resolving my issues through yoga practice, because I really want to meditate during yoga practice. I don't want to spend mm. two mm. hours doing asanas and then two hours doing meditation. That feels like so self-indulgent. Let me resolve mm. my issues in life and let me use my practice for practice, for my spiritual mm. practice. Mm -hmm. And let me use my body in a natural mm. way. So, you know, I bend down to tie my shoelace, Uttanasana. I sit on the floor <laughs> with the children in various different postures. Uh, I'm changing diapers, I'm pushing strollers, push chairs, up inclines, down inclines, shopping, all that stuff, using my body physically. <laughs> Actually, I feel much better when I practice asanas. Yeah, like you said, when you like you said, you have to do it again the next day. I actually found that practicing mm -hmm. asanas left me feeling, um, what's the word? Uh, reaching for something, like my body was not really feeling satisfied when I was practicing mm -hmm. asanas in that way. I was constantly just feeling a little achy, a little something. When I stopped practicing asanas for those. After those first three years, I stopped for a whole year. I didn't practice asana. I felt fine. Since I went back, you need to do it again. Um, so actually, I feel I sit. And even in the one sitting pose, I feel like I can release all the muscles in my body. I'm aware of my whole body. Mm -hmm. It's a very simple pose. It's not mm -hmm. even half lotus. It's not even uh, sukhasana. It's a very, very simple pathetic almost half lotus pose but i feel very comfortable and i can sit mm -hmm. like that for hours and mm -hmm. while i sit in the morning especially mm -hmm. i feel my whole body releases my neck my shoulders wherever i may be mm -hmm. holding some tension from the day before just through doing one posture you don't need to do 200 poses one pose is enough and even patabi joy said <laughs> the same thing you only need to master one posture you need to mm -hmm. hold it for one yama three hours that's it that's all you need mm -hmm. So I've come to that, yeah. Um, <clears throat> and uh, yeah, I feel much better in my body, and I feel like all those tensions are kind of releasing uh, from my body. It's a mm -hmm. gradual process; mm -hmm. uh, it's dissipating. So um, I'm not really doing any practice, although I'm I am teaching some asanas and pranayama and and so on as the integral practice. It's a very beautiful practice. <clears throat> You'd asked about it a little bit. Some slight some some of the differences are, for instance, let's say when you're practicing asanas, what are you trying to achieve? What are we trying to do with a pose? Um, mm -hmm. Now, one of the 
the ideas that Acharya puts forward, which makes complete, complete sense, is you are trying to eliminate the apana in the body. This is also stated in Hatha Yoga Pradipika. You're trying to eliminate the apana in the body, the downward moving uh, the, energy, um, apana, mm-hmm. the prana that moves downwards. How do you do that? Mm-hmm. Where does that move in the body? Well, mm-hmm. apana moves in the left-hand side of the body downwards. Why in Ashtanga would you do the right mm-hmm. side of the pose if you're trying to eliminate the apana? In some poses, let's say Marichasana D, <laughs> the left foot presses on the right side Right, and the right foot will press on the left mm-hmm. side when you're doing um, the left side. Mm-hmm. So, in some poses, the mm-hmm. application of the feet may make it may may change the emphasis of the pose. Uh, if you're doing a simple forward bend, uh, in no, it's not a simple forward bend. Let's say Adabada Padma Pashivottanasana. If you put your right foot in half mm-hmm. lotus, it's pressing on the lower left side of your abdomen. The point of mm-hmm. Arpana moving downwards. Okay, this helps to reverse the flow of apana and bringing the prana up in the body. So in this case, using the right foot first mm-hmm. has the effect of eliminating the apana in the body. In other poses, let's say Tiryang Mukha Pashimuttanasana, you're going to bend the right leg back first um, and straighten the left leg. The pressure is on the right side of the lower right side of your abdomen, not on the apanic mm-hmm. side. So in his system, Right. You would do Tiryang Mukha Kapada Pashimottanasana on the on the left side first. Whereas Adabada Padma Pashimottanasana, you do on the right side first because of the impact it has on right. the prana in the body. So in that sense, in the mm. first in the first sense, um, there's an effort to intelligently move the prana in the body. Another feature is not touching the legs together in, um, let's say, in summer city. Mm. When you touch the legs together, according to Ayurveda, this increases the uh, apanic and uh, vata element in the body. So having them separated actually allows Hmm. for more prana movement in the body. And then I think one of the critical things uh, about this practice is that when are you going to decide to sit and meditate? When does your practice going to lead you to, to that point where you actually want to sit? Because that's what yoga is all about, right? You want to meditate, I think. Mm-hmm. Are you going to practice mm-hmm. asanas for two <laughs> hours? And then you come to the end and you're a stronger practice and you're sitting in lotus. Do you have any energy for that pose when after two hours? Not whatsoever. What you really want to do <laughs> is you want to do shavasana and you want to go totally out and it's over. Right. So when is the point at which you would be ready to sit and meditate. So one of the things Acharya has taught me mm. is, <clears throat> no, um, the body, they say, in the, they say in the ancient text that this body can fly through the air. It's meant for flight. Well, <clears throat> we shouldn't mm. take these things literally. But when you practice asanas, at a certain <laughs> point, you're going to feel like you're flying. You're buzzing mm. from the energy of mm. the prana in your body. That's the time to mm-hmm. sit. That's the time to mm-hmm. center your energy. That's the time and to go sit. into a meditation. And That's so, a series of cool down poses at that point, some mudras and pranayamas, will lead the mind uh, in the right direction. Whereas in mm-hmm. the Ashtanga practice, you get to that point, 
fairly quickly get through the standing postures and you know you're you're really like you're flying <clears throat> and you use that energy to take you through another 90 minutes of practice and then you're tired and you want to lie down so in this practice right. uh it gets you to the point of being mentally prepared being mentally alert so you know the sattvic element that we're trying mm -hmm. to cultivate is not just <clears throat> shutting off the mind it's not just because that could be tamasic mm -hmm. that could just be going to sleep you want to cultivate mm -hmm. the sattva in the body right. sattva in the mind so you do that mm -hmm. through asana practice through an intelligent methodology of uh, using the asanas you make the sattva start flying up in the body and then you're ready mm -hmm. to sit so mind is alert and calm so you don't want it just to be mm -hmm. exhausted and tamasic mm -hmm like it would be after doing all this rajasic practice yeah. through Ashtanga, they get to a point mm. where you just want to, you know, just want to death. you want to enter <laughs> death, literally death, we're going to go to yeah. corpse pose, yeah. going to corpse pose, you want to die. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> so, um, yeah. so yeah, that's the, that's the practice that I've been uh, starting to teach to people. But in my personal practice at the moment, I just I just sit and walk. I sit and walk, and I love it. It's, it's nice. really it's profound for me. Yeah, it's beautiful. I, it sounds like sounds like my nine days in Vipassana. A lot of sitting, a lot of walking. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> how do you amazing. come back? And, how do you go back and forth? <laughs> harmony between those two things, Ashtanga and and uh, I think I found I think um, I found my own Vipassana by myself. I never did a formal training. Mm -hmm. um for me i i feel like because also like for you i sort of i started with meditation um and so it was always something that was like really like in me like i i prefer in a way <laughs> um and i think definitely there was a time when I was very into the asana and the meditation kind of had to take a back seat because, you know, like you said, you know, at one point I was doing like four hours of practices in the morning and it's not sustainable. Yeah. Um, and Seven. so I feel like as sort of, I've also kind of matured through the practice and, and reached a point in the asana where I just felt like I don't want to do anymore. <laughs> like I've reached my maximum capacity of interest at this point. <laughs> then I've I've definitely made that time again to to do more seated practice. And usually I would do it first before the asana because the asana once like you say, once you kind of start to get into it and always you know there is that strong pattern that once you get into it you're kind of like oh this isn't so bad this is <laughs> this is okay but then at the end you know you've expended so much energy that you don't really have the the time or the interest to like sit or do pranayama or do meditation you just kind of want to lie down relax and then like move on with your day so um, yeah. yeah. So for me, I always try to structure it like the most subtle thing first, and then kind of move into the the grosser aspects that then move you into the day, which is is you know sort of maximum uh, extroverted output. <laughs> well, that makes complete sense, of course. But before sunrise is the time for meditation, and afterwards mm. is the time for mm -hmm. uh, exercise. <clears throat> But uh, it's also the case, isn't it, that uh, you need to maintain that 
uh, a certain level of practice to uh, a certain length and intensity of practice to maintain those poses and then your med- totally. the danger is that your meditation is get cut gets cut short that's what i was finding i never yeah. I never was giving myself totally. getting, getting the maximum out of my meditation because i had to cut it short so i could do my asana practice so i could teach mm-hmm. and uh, i just decided that that's more important for me um that i didn't need the other yeah. one so i let that expand and the other yeah. one disappear yeah I think that's, I think there's, there is that sort of like, um, you know, maybe it's, it's very natural that we go through these like developmental stages and, and, you know, find, find a place in yourself when, when you're really like, okay, I, I actually don't need to do all those advanced asanas. Like I'm okay to let them go and just sort of do something very basic because this other thing is more important to me. Mm-hmm. Um, yep. you know, but but then there's also the stage where you're like, oh, I really want to do all the advanced asanas. So then you have to kind of let something else go. You know, so it's it I think it's yeah, it's just like finding what your priority is and then also what's serving you in the sense that it's like really, you know, nourishing your spirit and your soul and and you know, helping you it grow. Mm-hmm. You know, I was one one year. I was in England. I was living there, and I had had the opportunity to go to Chithurst, and there's a Theravadan uh, Buddhist community there. And I was listening to a speaker. It wasn't the American Ajahn Sumedho, but it was it was an Australian. I forget his name, Ajahn Cha, someone like that. And he was talking about his uh, decision to take refuge and become a monk formally take the robes and and he said it was just looking at his life and looking at this plate and all of these different things that he had to maintain whether it was you know um, relationships or a job or your advanced bee practice you know <laughs> they're all like little crabs on this plate and he was just spending his entire life trying to keep the crabs on the plate and i i think about that as i watch the I watch the progress of my own day, and like here's this is me trying to keep my physical practice on the plate. This is me trying to, you know, um, keep my relationship on the plate or the the wealth building job part on the plate, and <laughs> the, art. Um, the art piece, you know, trying to keep that on the plate. But I'm just like watching things just fall off the plate continuously. That's they're all it's. Uh, Simplify, <laughs> but it, it just, you just have to like throw your hands up and point like this. They are not staying on the plate. Yeah. Get a bowl. Get a bowl. <laughs> yeah, one one of the, uh, <clears throat> I think one of the most uh, profound uh, things that I've learned from Acharya is that uh, <clears throat> if you can integrate and keep keep your life sort of simple. Um, then uh, things go much better. And uh, if you're doing a job, uh, let's say you're, you know, if you're teaching yoga and you practice yoga, and uh, and uh, um, that inclines you to a lifestyle which supports those things, then that that all that's all that that those things all enhance each other. And actually, even your job can be yoga. Whereas if there are diverse mm. things in your life which are kind of pulling you in different directions uh, and conflicting you. And maybe, you know, we have an inclination uh, 
to engage in many, many different things which maybe are irrelevant uh, to our central purpose. Mm. And if you find your central purpose and you follow that and keep it simple, things go well. But uh, if you try to do too much and, and, and spread yourself amongst too many things, then you're going to get yourself into, find yourself in conflict. And work is one of the principal things that we do in life. Mm. You spend eight hours a day working. So if you're in misery during your work, then uh, that's huge. That's definitely going to make you, you fall off the plate completely. <clears throat> it mm. affects your sleep. It'll affect yeah. your, your eating. It affects your digestion, etc., etc. Um mm. So finding coherence is, I think, very extremely valuable. We're very lucky. We, mm. if teaching, if practicing yoga is your passion, teaching yoga really, I said the opposite earlier, supports your passion in a certain sense. <laughs> if you can, if you can be not conflicted about it, if you can find something, if you can come yeah. from a true place. And I can't, you know, when I was in the classroom, mm. I wasn't conflicted in the classroom. I was enjoying, and I was, I was mm. in that experience. But when I reflected, yeah. when I reflected on my teachers, <clears throat> Atabi Joyce and Acharya, when I reflected on what I was learning from different people and where my life was going in general and my own practice was going in general, that was a little bit different. Being in the classroom was always a healing. Mm -hmm. yeah. It was always humbling. And, you know, I never really regarded myself mm. as a teacher, but more like a friend that we, we had a community and we were sharing mm. and, uh, yeah. um, you know, it's kind of grateful to you for showing mm. me your terror because it revealed, you know, what was inside me too, you know. I have no idea what I'm doing. I'm yeah. terrified in this moment trying to teach this this man. Russell. <laughs> <laughs> will I break his will I break his spine when I'm adjusting him in Kapotasana? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. There is something really meditative and and synchronistic and kind of like this co-manifesting you know when you're teaching in a room that's that's really kind of magical that yeah. way in the Mysore style you know it's it's a it's it's beautiful it's yeah. such a such a privilege to be able to hold that space for people yeah it really is yeah it's beautiful um mm. all the all the issues and problems mm. notwithstanding but uh I think in general, it was, you know, we had 23 or 20, 21 years in New York City. Uh, Russell, you came pretty much at the beginning. And it was really, yeah, it was lovely. We had yeah. a beautiful experience together. Um, I just recognized at the end, yeah. I'm really tired. I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty afflicted. My body really hurts. Mm. Um, <clears throat> I mm. think uh, my own spiritual progress to some extent has been um, held back through teaching this and practicing this thing, which is not really in my heart. Um, so, mm -hmm. you know, easy to let it go. And the pandemic helped me just to let it go. And then moving from New York, let me, mm. you know, help me to let it go. <clears throat> Maybe one day I'll, I'll have a Mysore right. run yeah. somewhere. Who knows? But it will be different. It has to be different. Mm. It's not the guru-centric yeah. model. The guru-centric model is something... <laughs> It's, it's, it's something really, there's something wrong for our time. We are not, we are not mm. in this time. This, uh, uh, you know, you look at the Indian gurus. Which one? Which popular guru has not been shown to be an abuser in some way or other? Which one? 
Mm-hmm. There's not a single one yeah. who's out there who's popular, successful, made money, who is also not, uh, you know, an imperfect person. <clears throat> Perhaps there's no such thing as a perfect mm-hmm. person, but you know, mm-hmm. it's, uh, it's a, it's a, yeah. If it's out there, <clears throat> if it's being sold, then it's not real, right? It's not yeah. the real thing because you can't sell yoga. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Love yeah. that. Well, I can well, see I from can the video see. that it's quite dark there. Uh, we should probably yeah. let you get I back to your children. children. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, the sunset. Thank you so much yeah. for joining us. Yeah. Yeah. Probably about the same time as over there, no? We're at this probably about the same uh, longitude, is it? Are you in Calgary? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, yeah that's right. So, yeah, the sun goes here. down at like four thirty. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's dark. Yeah. Oh, lucky you! You're, you're in four, the south. Four four thirty starts going down. <laughs> you're yeah, that's right. You're, you're south of us. That's right. Here, I hear the sun. Yeah. <laughs> Sunsets. I think just before four o'clock at the moment. Oh, yeah, yeah, I remember that. Yeah, dark days, days are getting longer. The dark days, days get... of the year. Yeah. Oh well, today's yeah. the solstice. So tomorrow's lighter. Oh, yeah, it is. Oh. Solstice. Beautiful, yes. Oh. We're moving into the light now. Thank goodness. Yeah. What an yeah, auspicious yeah. day to record. That's what I thought. That's what well, I thought. I'd, I'd like to just add that I, I am, I'm very grateful that you came on the show and shared your time with us. You've, you've spoken 10,000 times more percent than you did in the totality of our relationship <laughs> in New York. And that's uh, been... Um, a revelation. So thank you. Yeah. No, I stopped teaching. I guess I won't shut up. Because <laughs> <laughs> I really like to teach yeah. with my hands, not with my, not with the words. Yeah. 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 Now it's different. I have to do it the other way. Well, yeah, <laughs> it's true. Online, it's very different. You have to use your words. <laughs> That's right. Thank you. Well, thank you. Um, thank you. It was a pleasure to, to reconnect with both of you. Thanks for listening to this episode of Finding Harmony. With me, your host, Harmony Slater. You can find out more information on my website, harmonyslater.com. And I look forward to connecting with you again soon. Standing in shadow watching the breaking waves there's a heart